Good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you here. Thank you for joining us here in person, and also thank you for joining us online. The title of this morning's message is Growth Requires Change. Growth Requires Change. And let's face it, in the last 22 months, we've all experienced a lot of change. We've experienced more than our share of change. And one interesting fact is that when our children's and our youth ministries, when they started gathering back in person last May, I couldn't believe how much the kids had grown since they were away. Right? Think about this. We were worshiping online for several months, over a year. And so then when we started gathering back in person, I looked at these kids and some of them had grown several inches, like taller than me. You know, as, as children grow, uh, the, the change in them is so evident. They grow in height. Some of their voices change. Right, And so some uh, of the students, they came back and they entered a whole different stage in, in life. And so seeing change in children, it's very obvious. We see them and we see the physical change. And it's exciting. it's exciting to see growth in children. As children of God, it's important for us to know, too, that growth in our lives is just as if not more important. Because even though we focus so much on physical change and growth, as God's children, we are called to grow in our relationship with him. And that's never to stop. We never reach a point where we just stop growing spiritually. And I'm sure you've discovered in your own life, that I, as I have in my life, that spiritual growth, it doesn't happen haphazardly. Spiritual growth just doesn't happen by chance. Spiritual growth takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. And today's message is all about how a transformed life results in changes to our life. A transformed life results in changes to our life. And I'll begin by saying that a transformed life is made possible only by God's mercy. It's made possible only by God's mercy. You know, in the Old Testament, when God led his people out of Egypt, he instructed them to build for him a tabernacle, a tent. And this tent would be the place where the people would go to come into the presence of God. But what's fascinating and in some ways ironic about that tabernacle is that almost every physical feature of that tent reminded people to keep a distance. Don't come too close. You're not allowed in here. You have not been granted access to this place. And so I find that kind of ironic that God had his people build for him this tabernacle, a place where they can go, but at the same time, the physical structure said, wait, 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 don't come too close. I want to show you a picture of what the tabernacle may have looked like. 
And here you see this courtyard. And toward the back of the courtyard, that structure is the tent, the tabernacle. And most people were not allowed back there by the tent. That's why you see the people congregating at the front part of the courtyard. Now this next photo shows you the inside of the tabernacle tent. As you entered the tent, you came to a place called the Holy Place. This room was about 30 feet deep, about 15 feet wide, and maybe about 15 feet tall. So that was the holy place. Only priests could enter the holy place. The commoner had to stay outside in the courtyard. Now at the back of this tabernacle is another place divided by this thick curtain, this veil. And that place was known as the most holy place or the holy of holies. And only one person was allowed back in the most holy place. That was the high priest. And he could only go back there on one day during the calendar year. And that was the day of atonement. And when he went, he didn't go empty-handed. He would go to the most holy place with the goat blood, with the blood of a goat. And with that blood, he would sprinkle it on what was known as the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in order to atone for the sins of the people. And that place was separated by, again, as I said, this huge, thick curtain. It served as a barrier. It separated people from God. It had to because of their sin. And the thing is this. No matter how many times the high priest made sacrifices for the sins of the people, the one thing he could never do was to sit on that mercy seat. As tired as he got, he could never, as tempting as it was, he could never sit down on that mercy seat because his work was never done. Now, we all know that uh, soccer is a popular sport. Many of your kids may be playing soccer right now. Our kids grew up playing soccer. The thing about soccer is this. You never really know how much time is left in the game, right? Because only one person has the official time, and that's the referee on the watch. I find that somewhat interesting. In football, in basketball, you have a scoreboard, you have a clock, and you see the time ticking down. But in soccer, you don't see that. It's only on the wrist of the referee. You might say you are at the mercy of the referee. So here's what happens. When your team is down by a goal and you're nearing the end of the game and you need one, one score to tie up the game, doesn't it seem like the time goes really fast? When you're losing and you need another score, the time just ticks away so fast. Now, when you're winning... You have one goal ahead of the other team, and it's almost the end of the game. You're not sure when it's going to end. You're thinking, hurry up, hurry up, blow the whistle. When you're winning, the time goes so slowly. It's, it's crawling, and, and you're on the edge of your seat. And finally, 
when the referee blows the whistle and says, it's done, it's over, it's finished, you feel a big sigh of relief. Well, guess what? In the Old Testament tabernacle, the one thing the high priest could never say was it is finished. But there's hope. And that hope is found in God's mercy and in God's mercy alone. You see, when Jesus hung on the cross, before he breathed his final breath, what did he say? It is finished. His was the ultimate sacrifice. All that is now the backdrop to a passage that I want you to turn to in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12. We'll start in verse 1. Romans chapter 12. I'll read to you verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this to the Roman believers. And he says this in Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of, here it is, God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now keep your place here. We'll come back to chapter 12 in just a second. Did you know that the entire Old Testament serves as the backdrop to what Paul says here in Romans 12. You see, the high priest in the Old Testament offered a dead sacrifice. In contrast, when Jesus went to the cross, he made it possible for you and for me to offer ourselves as a, not dead, but living sacrifice. Let's continue on in verse 2 to see what this means. Paul says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Have you ever done or said something that you eventually regretted? Don't raise your hand. We all have. We've all said something or done something that we eventually regretted. And the moment we say something and we know that what we're saying is not right, at that moment, here's what often happens. We say to ourselves, what was I thinking? Maybe we gave into a temptation. We fell into sin and we felt miserable afterward. We say to ourselves, what was I thinking? You see, you know the phrase, what was I thinking? It tells us that when we do or say something wrong, we can trace it all the way back to our mind, to our mindset. It's important to know that in Romans 12, Paul doesn't say, be transformed by your renewed mind. He didn't say that. 
He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a present continuous verb. The renewing of your mind. In other words, it's not a one-time occurrence that happened in the past. You might recall from last week's message, we talked about the difference between positional holiness, which happened at one point, positionally, God changed us, but then we differentiated that from practical holiness, which is a lifelong process. God changed us positionally. That happened in the past. Practical holiness is a daily occurrence. And that's why our minds need renewing, but not only every day, multiple times a day, throughout the day. In my studies for this message, I came across a helpful reminder of the importance of renewing our minds. And I thought I'd share it with you because I found this to be very helpful for me, this reminder of the importance of renewing the mind. It's kind of like this four-step process. One, our thinking determines our focus. Our thinking determines our focus. Two, our focus shapes our attitude. Three, our attitude forms our words. And four, our words motivate our behavior. I like that. Our thinking determines our focus. That makes sense. We tend to think about something and then we focus on it. Our focus shapes our attitude. Our attitude forms the words that come out of our mouths. And ultimately, our words motivate our behavior. Did you know that our minds have great power over our actions? They don't happen independent of each other. That's why Paul exhorted the Philippian believers to have the what? Mindset of Christ Jesus. That's why the author of Hebrews says to fix our eyes. That's the same, same thing as saying fix your mind. Fix your mind on Jesus. James, in his letter, he, he warned us. He said, if we think that we are religious, in other words, if we think we're righteous, but we cannot control our tongue, we deceive ourselves and our religion is worthless. You know, our righteousness or lack thereof is determined by how well we can control our tongue. You see, because we can study the Bible all we want. We can come to church all week long. We can go from one Bible study to the next Bible study, from one conference to the next. But in the end, if we cannot bridle the tongue, James says, our religion is worthless. That is sobering. As much as it is good to study the Bible and to come to church and to go to your life group and your Bible study group, in the end, all of that good stuff can be undone by what comes out of our mouths. And this ought to be especially uh, sobering for teachers 
here at our church who regularly teach God's word. One author said this, and this really convicted me. Discretion in speech is better than fluency of speech. Discretion in speech is better than fluency of speech. In other words, the true test of spirituality is not how well I can articulate something. The true test of spirituality is how well I can control my tongue. And the reality is this. We get in trouble far more by saying too much than not saying enough, right? Saying too much, not saying enough. That's why Solomon, the wisest man in his day, said even fools are thought wise if they just stay silent. You want to be smart? Just close your mouth. The true test of spirituality is how well we can control the tongue because ultimately, let's face it, our words motivate our behavior. How many times have you been frustrated on the freeway so you mumble something about or to the other driver under your breath. So here's the progression. What happens is once you mumble something, the next is your actions. Your arms go up in the air. And then as you drive past that other car, you stare. You, you give that death stare. And it all begins with that mumbling under your breath that motivates the behavior to follow. A heated argument with a loved one can lead to both parties storming out of the room and then the eventual silent treatment. Our words motivate our behavior. That's why our minds need constant renewal, not just daily, by the way, throughout the day. And I think this is where the concept of a daily devotional as good as it is, may not present the complete picture of what we need to grow in Christ. Now, hear me out. Okay. Maybe you've heard that for the first time today. But maybe, just maybe, the daily devotional as we know it may not present the complete picture of what we need in order to grow in Christ. You see, daily devotionals are important. Yes, I highly recommend them. But for many Christians, maybe we need to, to rethink our approach to the daily devotional. You see, because if we think that a five or ten minute time in the morning is sufficient to get us through the day, then what's going to happen is we will rely on those five to ten minutes. And so we end up having this superstitious approach to the daily devotional. We think, oh, okay, I've done my Bible reading for the day. Whew, I've said my prayers for the day. Now God's going to be happy with me. And so I can now go on with the rest of my day. That can be a very superstitious approach to the daily devotional. 
But the Bible says pray continually. Some of us, in fact, all of us, would benefit from a day-long devotional. And what that means is this. Every time you get in the car, your devotional continues. God, I need patience on the 60 freeway. Approaching the 57 interchange. I need patience. So your daily devotional continues. You're getting ready to go into a meeting, a long meeting. Who loves long meetings? God, I need patience. I don't want to get irritated by this long meeting. So your daily devotional continues. You're about ready to get out of the car because you're in front of the house of a family member, a relative, and you're going to go for an awkward family gathering. God, I need patience. Help me not to snap at my relative, even though they're weird. Growth requires constant renewing. So maybe we ought to rethink our approach to a daily devotional and really look at it as a day-long devotional. Maybe get into God's Word right in the middle of the day, not just in the morning. Maybe before you get hangry. Maybe before dinner. Maybe at nighttime. A day-long devotional. Growth requires renewing the mind, not just once a day, but throughout the day. Because, again, our thinking determines our focus. Our focus shapes our attitude. Our attitude forms the words that come out of our mouths. And those words will ultimately motivate our behavior. Now, in recent years, a word has been very popular amongst Christian circles. It's the word authenticity. People desire authenticity. Authenticity is a good thing, with one caveat, if I may say. For the Christian, authenticity is good as long as we understand that keeping it real is not an excuse to keep living a life of disobedience. Keeping it real, keeping it raw, it often involves revealing our sins to the world. And in some ways, I'm afraid that in the name of authenticity, as we reveal our raw self to others, that has somehow become a badge of honor. Look, here's the real me. No filter. This is it. But what if the real me doesn't look like Christ? What if the real me does not look like Christ? And the reality is sometimes the real me does not, and oftentimes it does not look like Christ in my thoughts, in my speech, in my actions. Instead of simply expressing our authenticity to others, in the name of uh, 
authenticity. What God calls us to do is to actually do something about it and change our ways. Remember, growth requires change. We've all put on an outfit in the morning. We went in front of the mirror and we thought, mm, no, 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 not that one. So we go back and change. And if we don't say that, then a spouse will say that or a child will say that. No, you're not going to wear that out, are you? You're not going to wear that one, are you? No. So then we go back and we change our outfit until we get it right. That's why the Apostle Paul instructed the Ephesian church. And take a look up here. He said to them in Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, he said, You were taught with, re with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Did you know that authenticity does us no good if we are content to live our authentic life of disobedience? Dr. Eric Tanez of Biola University and also a former speaker on a number of occasions here at our church, he was part of an interview and he talked about the subject of authenticity. And it really, uh, it spoke to me. His words were sobering. Just listen as I share these words. Dr. Tanez said this. By the way, if you're taking notes, that's Eric, E-R-I-K, and Tanez, T-H-O-E-N-N-E-S. T-H-O-E-N-N-E-S. Dr. Tanez says this. It's almost as if our sins have become a currency of solidarity. Something we pat each other on the back about as fellow, authentic, broken people. But sin should always be grieved rather than celebrated. What he means is this. It's one thing to sympathize with someone who shares a difficult story of failure, of sin. What we don't want to do is to celebrate that sin. So when you're in a circle with your group and somebody shares about a deep, dark sin, what you don't want to do is, oh, you too, me too, yes! Let's celebrate together. We ought to be grieved by that sin. We ought to be grieved by our sin. That's why the Apostle Paul, in speaking to the Galatians, he instructed them to bear one another's burdens. You can find that passage in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. To bear means to carry one another's burdens. And that verse might be familiar to many of you. In fact, you might find that in a daily devotional somewhere, in a Christian bookstore or online. But what's not obvious right away 
is what verse 2 of Galatians 6 is actually talking about. We read the words, bear one another's burdens, carry one another's burdens. But what does that actually mean? Is it simply the problems of life? The actual context is found in the previous verse, in verse 1. And Paul talks about the sins of the people. And so when it says to bear or carry one another's burdens, another way to say that is to carry one another's sins. Many of you are in life groups, other accountability groups. Last Sunday, we launched our latest rooted group. These are wonderful groups. And oftentimes in these groups, people will share their struggles with sin. And they will be open and vulnerable. And that's important because we were meant to grow in community. Now, if you are part of an accountability group, a life group, a rooted group, a small group, when someone shares about a struggle with a sin and then asks for prayer, at that moment, did you know that you have now become responsible to help carry that person's load. What does that mean? That means that you pray for that person. What does that mean? That means that you check in with that person regularly. You see, all too often, when we, when we share about prayer requests, we often share about our health or the health of a loved one. And that's important. And so it's uh, very natural for us the next week or the following week, hey, how's, how's your spouse doing? Is your family member better? How are you feeling? So we do that often with our prayer request for our physical health, and that's important. But how often do we do that when someone asks us to pray about a struggle with a sin? Hey, a couple weeks ago you asked me to pray. Have you experienced any progress? in that area? Have you grown spiritually? I'm not sure if you've ever thought about sin in this manner. Because we live in an individualistic society. But did you know that overcoming sin is actually a team effort? We're so quick to say, hey, I, I got to deal with my sin. Or you got to deal with your sin and you just got to overcome it. But did you know, biblically speaking, overcoming sin is a team effort? Otherwise, why would Paul command the Galatians to bear one another's sins? You see, sin is so oppressive. When somebody sins, and they are truly remorseful. Sometimes that, that weight is so heavy. Paul says, help your fellow brother or sister. It's not just simply restoring that person. It's to then carry that burden throughout the course of the entire restoration. 
process. Overcoming sin is a team effort. It was not meant to be done alone. Last week, I asked you to email me a story of change, how God has changed you. Thank you for your responses. Uh, Some of those stories were hard to read because they were just honest. And I imagine some of those stories were really hard to, to write. Someone shared how God had brought victory over this person's addiction to pornography. Another person wrote about how God brought victory over this person's dependency on painkillers. This person wrote that at one time in this person's life, because of excruciating pain, the doctor prescribed a medication that had narcotics, heavy narcotics. And so what gradually started as, I'm not feeling good, so I'm going to take this medication, turned into, in order to prevent me from feeling bad, I'm going to take this medication. Two, you know, I'm going to be in an environment where there's going to be a lot of stress and anxiety. So I'm going to take this medication. And one thing led to another, to the point where this person became dependent on this narcotic. And this person was feeling shameful because how could this person share this with the doctor? Because the doctor knew that this person was a Christian. But praise God that this person found victory over that dependency, and God brought relief and release from that. Praise God for that change in this person's life. Yes. That's a scary thing. I imagine many can relate to that. Another person shared with me how God had brought healing to this person's marriage. This person wrote, it went from me me doing everything in my power to hurt my spouse to leaning on God's power to overcome that temptation to now truly loving my spouse and honoring our marriage. Praise God for that. And that doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lot of work from resenting your spouse to absolutely being in love with your spouse. Another person shared how this person found success in being an entrepreneur, but then ultimately how God drew this person to himself by the people around this person. This person wrote, I committed my life to Christ at the age of 43. And then a pastor convinced me to read the Bible daily, which I have done for many years. And then God also convicted me to stop drinking alcohol. And I haven't had a drink in 30 years. One day I was driving home from work past the current location of Ephraim. The first building was in the framing stage, and God instructed me to start attending this church. That was 30 years ago, praise God. 
Another person wrote this. Hi, Tim. I'm not sure how to say it, but I'll try. I found that the more I say, what would Jesus do, the less critical and irritated I become. And yes, that applies to crazy drivers, which is one of the hardest things for me to overcome. Amen to that. So this person continues. So I can't say I've changed, but I'm changing. I thought that was important. I can't say I've changed, but I'm changing. And finally, this one person wrote something that uh, it really spoke to me, and I, I imagine this will hit home to maybe a number of you. So I want to read this email in its entirety. This person writes, Thank you for the convicting message on Sunday. Our homework was to identify and then communicate to you how God has changed our lives. That question has interrupted my thoughts each day this week. To be perfectly candid, I must confess that I was unable to recognize an area of my life that God has recently changed. And that's not because changes are not required. God quickly re reminded me of at least four areas where change is needed, but I've not taken his voice seriously enough. I'm so thankful for the areas of my life where changes have been made, but over the past few years, I focused far more on things like Bible study and reading materials that have helped me to better understand God's word, etc., etc. But I've neglected areas that need attention in my personal life, like God's desire for me to be more patient, the least critical of the four areas that the Holy Spirit brought to my attention. And then this person wrote, I still honk when a person is driving under the speed limit or cuts me off with a sad emoji. I've resolved to pay more attention to his voice as he speaks to me in the areas in which I must be more submissive to his will for my life. Bottom line, I need to be a more faithful disciple walking as Jesus walked. Again, thanks for a sermon that has provoked a lot of soul searching this week. If we truly want to change, and I hope we all do, Please know that it can happen. And as followers of Jesus Christ, it must happen. And the best thing is, we don't have to do it alone. We are called to carry one another's burdens, one another's sins. It's a team effort. And teammates don't let teammates fall. Teammates don't let teammates fall. Yesterday, Joanne and I spent the afternoon with our youth group at their winter retreat. And it was, it was a blast. We had such a blast there yesterday afternoon. We arrived at the perfect time, right before lunch. And so we drove down to 
Irvine Regional Park. And inside the park is this wonderful outdoor recreation center called the Irvine Ranch Outdoor Recreation Center. It's an entire campsite within the boundaries of Irvine Regional Park in the city of Orange. And so we drove to this beautiful facility and we were about to have lunch. And we sat down with all the students, with Pastor Kevin, his wife Kelly, Tim Callahan, his wife Alexis, and we had a great time. And I didn't know it. I thought, you know, we'd just be eating hot dogs, which would have been great. But the camp staff there, they prepared, prepared fajitas, steak fajitas. And so we had this great lunch. And then after lunch, we joined the group in the high ropes course. And that was a blast. Okay, if you've ever done a high ropes course, you know that you walk away with all kinds of life lessons, right? There, and by the way, there are all kinds of sermon illustrations after you come back from a high ropes course. That's why teams go there for a team bonding. And so when we were done with a high ropes course, which was kind of nerve wracking at times, scary, and took a lot of energy because you're way up there. Pastor Kevin said, oh, Pastor Tim, I imagine there's a sermon illustration in there somewhere. And sure enough, as I was driving home, I thought, okay, I'm going to put this in to tomorrow's message. Before we got up to the, the ropes and the cables and all that with our harnesses and our helmets, the, the, the memory that I'll keep with me more than any other memory of yesterday's high ropes course was this. For over a half an hour, before we even got off the ground, the camp staff took us through all the safety requirements and instructions. And I thought, hurry up, I just want to get up there. Hurry up, time's wasting. But the more they talked, the more I realized, wow, something can go terribly wrong up there. And we need to be careful. And then, the, the best part of those instructions was this. We want you to find a partner. Pair off with a partner. They would not let us go on the high ropes challenge alone. So our partner, my partner, my wife, side by side, I would click and attach my cable to the cable, and then she would say, Safety check, safety click. You have to make sure it's on there. And then the next one on there, safety check, safety click. So we'd have to, every single time we moved, your partner had to say that so that you would not think that you were attached when you were not attached. Now it's profound because partners and teammates don't let each other fall. That's why two are better than one, the Word of God tells us. And that is why if you want to see change in your life, surround yourself with people. Surround yourself with teammates who can help carry your burden. And likewise, you be that teammate to someone else because we are not meant to do this alone. We're in this together, and together we can experience change in our lives. Let's pray together.
Thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is so powerful. It is so clear. It gives us instruction for life. Your word calls us to bear one another's burdens, to carry each other's sins. That's an awesome responsibility. Give us the strength to do just that because we want to grow and we want those around us to grow. So thank you that we can grow together in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.